Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Kate and we are doing Pathetic Fallacy in Fictions today. This is episode 41 of the Matterhorn. Um, And pathetic fallacy is a literary term you may have, you know, learned in school or maybe something you kind of use on a daily basis in your work. Um, It may seem like an unusual choice for this idea of layering the text that we create, but I think that maybe all but at least certain of, of these literary devices lend themselves to Um, kind of a greater discourse that creates a dialogue um, amongst texts and the ways that we um, the ways that we create fiction because of the um, discourse that then has been created around it if that makes sense but you can also look at it um, more like a tool say than um, a layer so whichever way you want to look at it Um, it's something that we'll look at more closely today. I'll kind of investigate where the, this, uh, term came from with you briefly at the beginning. We'll look at a definition together. Um, we will focus mostly on the connection to nature and weather, um, with this term, although there are other ways that it can be used. Um, We'll also look at humans and the elements and the ways that in real life, um, we may see this kind of metaphorical um, connection between humans and the weather and nature and our emotions and feelings, um, which may be a different way of thinking about this idea or this tool to use in your fiction. Um, And then as always, we will look at some examples um, from more classical literature as well as some um, more contemporary examples. And finally, I'll take us to Spaces and Places today, which is about reclaimed land and the process of land reclamation. So as I mentioned, um, there is a lot of discourse around pathetic fallacy, interestingly enough, if you do a little dig online um, or in your library for some research, you'll probably find quite a bit because the term goes back to um, John Ruskin in the mid-1840s when he first um, created this term and then there was some backlash against it as well as then about 100 years later in the mid-20th century Um, there was sort of an upswing of talking about um, not only this term, but why Ruskin created it and what it has to do with um, different literary movements, as well as, um, for example, writing about the environment, um, working more toward the 1970s at that point. So um, 
pathetic fallacy in in essence is an inanimate object displaying human emotions or feelings um and it's it's sort of a subset of personification you can see it that way sometimes people get the two terms um confused but um it's only about emotions rather than like moving like a human or speaking um although if you know nature is saying something about uh, feelings or emotions then you know there's going to be crossover there as well but just so that we know what we're talking about i think it would be useful to look at what poetry foundation has to say and they link the term back to ruskin as i mentioned so it says the assignment of human feelings to inanimate objects as coined by victorian literary critic john ruskin in modern painters from 1843 to 1860 for him a poet's tendency to project his or her emotions outward onto the workings of the natural world was a kind of false vision Today, the term is used more neutrally, and the phenomenon is usually accepted as an integral part of the poet's craft. It is related to personification and anthropomorphism, but emphasizes the relationship between the poet's emotional state and what he or she sees in the object or objects. For instance, in William Wordsworth's I Wandered Lowly as a Cloud, the speaker sees a field of daffodils tossing their heads in a sprightly dance, outdoing the nearby lake's sparkling waves with their glee. The speaker, in times of solitude and introspection, is heartened by memories of the flower's joy. And so, you know, this is from um, Poetry Foundation, so they're talking about poetry, but of course we see this in other kinds of um, stories that are created, other kinds of fictions and novels, um, for sure. And a lot of times it gives other kinds of writing, or even um, film, for example, a perhaps more poetic quality or poetic feeling um often maybe romantic in nature but not only um and britannica adds in its definition um that in milton's on the Mo on the morning of christ's nativity all aspects of nature react effectively to the event of christ's birth the stars with deep amaze stand fixed in steadfast gaze ruskin considered the excessive use of this fallacy the mark of an inferior poet later poets however especially the imagists of the early 20th century as well as t.s Eliot and ezra pound used the pathetic fallacy freely and effectively and of course they did before that time as well so i mean there's partly this idea of kind of privileging um humans above nature by ruskin you know and what does that mean and this kind of um this kind of look at the um, aesthetic elite, um, which is not something born of nature, but of something special and godly um, created by humans. And so you can see why there would be kind of a backlash against this um, as well. And there's a very interesting um, response from Anthony Hecht at the beginning of his book Obligati, um, where he he talks about um just really the problems with um ruskin's arguments and there's i'm going to share with you a new york times article about um heck's work called a metaphor is a terrible thing to waste and it says obligati opens with a lecture the poet delivered two years ago at the library of congress where he was consultant in poetry from 1962 to 1984 on the pathetic fallacy. This lecture turns a critique of Ruskin's phrase for the illegitimate projection of human emotions onto objects. Quote, the willful fountain sings, the kindly flower rejoices. 
into a wide-ranging defense of metaphor as, quote, not merely the gadgets of poets, but virtually unavoidable as an instrument of thought. And though the lecture adopts a somewhat embattled tone, its argument is perhaps a little less than controversial. So it's this kind of battling against Ruskin, even though um, not many people were trying to hold up Ruskin on a pedestal at this point. And, you know, we're embracing metaphor in all its different forms, including pathetic fallacy and looking at um, the way that humanity and nature can be somewhat united in this way. Um, and in, in this, in this poet Hex, uh, work, for example, chorus from Oedipus at Colonus, we see, for example, this is just the last stanza of this work. So is it with that man, not just with me. He seems like a frail jetty facing north, whose pilings the wave batter from all quarters, from where the sun comes up, from where it sets, from freezing boreal regions from below. A whole winter of miseries now assails him, thrashes his sides, and breaks over his head. Um, and so we get, you know, a lot of emotion through um, the seasons, through nature, um, through the weathering as well here. And it just helps us to, I think, go deeper with the emotions that sometimes it's hard to put language to. But when we start to combine it with um, the experiences we have in the natural world and even the images that that conjures up, I think it can help us to go deeper. Um, so a link in Wordsworth's I Wandered Lonely is a Cloud or Daffodils, um, which Poetry Foundation mentioned there. It's a really famous one. And you could look at um, more of Wordsworth's work in relation to this. I mean, there's so many poets that come to mind with pathetic fallacy. There's Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, John Keats. There are loads more, of course, you know, and I'd love to hear who your who your favorites are. Or maybe on the contrary, maybe you agree with Ruskin and maybe there are those who do it that just kind of, you know, annoy you or you think it's over the top or it's a it's a false analogy. So, you know, I'd love to hear that as well. Um, and it can help us kind of refine what we're trying to do in our own work. But if you really want um, a great sort of, I guess you could call it pop culture example, the film Frozen offers this perfect example where Elsa's emotions um, are seen in the frozen world around her and the frozen world that she creates. And she has to gain control over her emotions or they become destructive um, even to herself and the people that she loves. And sometimes um, her emotions, if she's confused or she's angry or she's she's not sure, it can the, the rage inside of her can come out um, as this well, as ice and as these these frozen um, storms, for example, that become dangerous. So I've seen this quite a few times because I have a five-year-old at home. Um, if you haven't watched Frozen, um, you know, this actually I think it's quite um, a good film in a lot of ways and pathetic fallacy, I mean, certainly features. So on a different episode of the podcast, I'll look more at nature writing. So it's more today, um, I'm looking more at the way the natural elements are used in works of writing, not so much, um, say, works of like 
uh, Thoreau or writers who create fiction that really focus on the natural world, natural setting around them, it's more specific to this idea of pathetic fallacy. So we'll just we'll just save that for another day. And let's just come back to this idea that literary devices can be layers. Um, I think especially if we extend them over the course of our fictions and perhaps develop them in some way, allowing them to change from start to finish. So if you begin by using pathetic fallacy in one way um, with like a a really hot and sunny day, um, you know, that can be emotions of just glee and carefree natures of people or it can be kind of a rage or a madness you know think of Camus l'étranger the stranger or the outsider depending on the translation and you know the way the sun almost seems to kind of create this madness leading to um tragedy so you know you might start with with this kind of um setting or weather that um, displays emotions in some way and then you have the the contrast over time um, to a storm raging within um, and then maybe it's it's for example you come back to the sun but it's it's um, it's used in a different way so again it might be that rage and then it turns into a more calming kind of sun's rays and it might be interesting to think about how you could have both of those coexisting um, in the same work of, of fiction and developing the characterization even more um, so you know literary devices that are developed I think you know like a particular symbol for example and these might turn into symbols um, or an extended metaphor over time that becomes subvert- subverted this can become a layer that works um, throughout your fiction now even if it's if it's a very short work like um, a poem or a song or it's a much longer work I think you can still um, show that kind of transition and change and you know a lot of what we talk about with um, with pathetic fallacy is that kind of transition and change. So the sudden coming of a storm or the changing of seasons, which might not be as sudden, but um, we can still really visibly um, see what those changes are. And then we we can look at the emotions that are connected with the character. So it's also about what the devices have to do with the dialogue of literature. Um, and I'll link a few other articles for you that talk about pathetic fallacy. Um, for example, we have Pastoralism as Culture and Counterculture in English Fiction, 1800 to 1928, From a View to a Death. This is about um, Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles from 1891. And just a short quote from that article, um, Tess is further seen and represented idyllically as a veritable queen of curds and cream in the oozy feminized world of the Dairylands. Orphically, as one like a vegetation goddess, she walks in the rank, untended dairy garden, while angel's heart music is wafted from a high window. In terms of the pathetic fallacy, as when she hides from a brutal farmer in a covert full of wounded, dying pheasants, and our compassion for her blurs with our concern for the pheasants. Emblematically, as when she blends with the Pauline figure of charity, she who suffereth long and is kind that is ubiquitous in Hardy's poems and novels, sacrificially, as she sleeps out on the sun-warmed stones of nature's temple at Stonehenge until the chill dawn brings capture, a death sentence, and a final release. And then there's an article called Beyond Ecology, Self-Place and the Pathetic Fallacy 
from 1978, and it discusses the need to bring the arts and humanities in discourse with science to preserve and celebrate our environment. I mean, this is the time of Rachel Carson. Um, we're looking at um, the kind of the really the first movements um, to fight climate change and to protect our environment. Um, and as on a on a cultural level and so this paper is really calling for the arts to to take a step up and be more um at the forefront of this fight which is i think is something that we could bring to today you know this article in 1978 as i mentioned now um some 50 years later um we might see a similar article calling for um calling for not just authors, but um, and filmmakers, for example, but also maybe people in academia talking about these subjects. Also, maybe politicians who are at the table, so to speak. You know, what are they bringing to the table? Are they bringing scientific facts and figures? Are they also bringing the way an artist has depicted um, climate change and its effects? Um, because sometimes, you know, that that um, argument is just as if not, if not more compelling if we look at the way it affects people. So here's a, here's a quote from that article. Once we engage in the extension of the boundary of the self into the environment, then of course we imbue it with life and can quite properly regard it as an animate. It is animate because we are part of it, and following from this, all the metaphorical properties so favored by poets make perfect sense. The pathetic fallacy is a fallacy only to the ego clencher. Metaphoric language is an indicator of place, an indication that the speaker has a place, feels part of a place. Indeed, the motive for metaphor may be, as Fry claims, a desire to associate and finally to identify the human mind with what goes on outside it. Because the only genuine joy you can have is in those rare moments when you feel that although we may know in part, we are also a part of what we know. So it's also looking at the reciprocal relationship that we have with the environment, both we, the real people, and um, people who are depicted in fictions, either way. And then I'm also linking an article from 1955 um, by Edward Davidson called Hawthorne and the Pathetic Fallacy. Um, and it shows that this this phenomenon of using pathetic fallacy um, was not was not new. It shows a lot of the tensions around the term and its use is about man's relationship to nature and the idea that we are one with nature instead of superior to it. Um, so it's interesting that this kind of defense almost of pathetic fallacy um, needed to occur. It might seem strange to a lot of us now, um, but I think by learning about some of the tensions around the term and its use, um, it makes a more effective practice of using pathetic fallacy now. And I'm interested in further considerations of this of this term before we go to literary examples, um, because I'm interested in the way that place shapes culture. So if weather and climate can shape culture as well, and the emotions reflected may change the way people interact with it, as well as their own emotions, then how is the culture of the text connected to the climate and the weather depicted? So for example, you know, the many sunny days I mentioned, um, sorry, the sunny days I mentioned in, in uh, L'Etranger, um, that 
create assertive anger and madness. It might instead, in a place with many sunny days, it might mean a more carefree, relaxed nature. Or maybe there's a tension between the new two. So thinking about, um, you know, the weather of a place, you know, I live in Switzerland currently, and the snowy mountains um, depicted in, for example, Frankenstein, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and in other texts as well, this kind of rugged terrain, this isolation, um, sort of the magical beauty of the snow as well. What does it have to do with um, with the people who inhabit it and the stories that are told within it? Um, and so you might think about places that you've spent time and where you're setting your fictions and you know what that has to do with those places and their culture. But then we can also think about um, different ways of seeing weather's effect on our moods um, in real life, you know, and sometimes it almost feels like magic the way that the weather can reflect back to us what's going on in our minds. But maybe that's because we also have um, so many emotions within us and the weather can be cathartic and allowing that emotion to really come to the surface you know maybe you've got um you know several things floating around in your mind and because it's raining you allow one to come to the surface or because it's a bright sunny day you allow a different one to come to the surface and you just might want to think about how that um how that has has worked in your own life you know and the the different the different parts might be the the light how much light is there um during the day or at a certain time of day the precipitation if any the temperature and then what kind of precipitation that creates um the changing of the seasons um, and all of these things might also affect your own activity or inactivity, the places that you go, um, the way that your, you know, your daily life is then affected by the weather. And then so your emotions may be impacted even more. Um, there's been, you know, some research about this and, you know, part of it has to do with, for example, seasonal affect disorder, which is, you know, a real thing. And part of it's related to vitamin D, but it's, it's also more than that. It's, it's also related to, you know, the different areas that I just mentioned. Um, and it affects, um, you know, some people and other people, it, it really doesn't affect at all. And um, some research that I came across was showing how individual differences um, are partly genetic, um, as well as perception or the way that somebody was raised in terms of how they are affected by the weather. So, um, I mean, weather, I'm just simplifying it, but also the changing seasons, for example, um, and these transitions. So the article is called Come Rain or Come Shine, Individual Differences in How Weather Affects Mood, and I'll, I'll link that for you there as well. Um, but, um, you know, it, it really, it really does look at the way that, you know, this can be a, this can be something on a chemical level, on a genetic level. It can also be something that's, um, that's culturally learned. So all of these things are kind of working in conjunction to, um, change the shape of our moods in relation to the weather. Um, and, you know, there's always, I think it's important to think of these individual differences because as we create characters and they exist within these um, settings and um, climates that we create and daily weather patterns that we create in our, in our books, 
there might be differences in the way that different characters um, interact with and respond to the weather as well. And the weather may only reflect in pathetic fallacy the emotion of um, of a single character and not the emotion of um, the rest of your characters. So there's always alternatives. You know, we shouldn't we show that we shouldn't assume rain is sadness or sun is happiness. Um, it's how we use the natural elements and how they affect and are reflective of the characters. That's important. I mean, if you think of the winter season, for example, and of course that's that's linked with um, seasonal affect disorder, which again, you know, does not affect everyone, but some people um, even have this as a diagnosed um, problem, uh, sometimes resulting in depression, even clinical depression um, in, in the times of, of winter. Uh, it's it's interesting to look at the way that different people are affected, and especially when there is no light. So I'll link in, um, I mean, I, I happen to be somebody who absolutely loves winter, and I'm not suggesting that people with the disorder do not. So keeping that separate from this. Um, but, you know, a lot of people just kind of hate the coming of winter because it's darker. Um, the snow is a pain. I happen to love it. I also love the the darkness as well, um, for some reason. And I love the the snow itself. I'll link in an article I wrote about snow last year, linking it to lots of different um, literature and other kinds of texts that that I love too. But um, in doing research for that article, I came across um, this one called Norwegian uh, the Norwegian town where the sun doesn't rise in the Atlantic. And it's about this place called Tromso, where there really isn't any light at all for um, quite a long time during the winter. Um, and despite that, the residents have low rates of um, wintertime depression. They have lower rates than people in um, in the lower latitudes, um, the research shows. And what is interesting is that they really kind of embrace this time of year and have a very different um, very different attitude about it. And the article says, while there is some debate among psychologists about the best way to identify and diagnose wintertime depression, one thing seems clear. Residents of northern Norway seem able to avoid much of the wintertime suffering experienced elsewhere, including paradoxically in warmer, brighter, more southern locations. Um, and so some of this is the the actual light created by the snow that falls. Um, so, you know, they, they do still have um, light around them. You know, if you're in this area that's cold and dark a lot of the time and there's no snow, it actually is much darker. Once the snow comes, um, we just um, we we have more more light around us. But it's also the the attitude toward that time and the way that the community comes together in different ways in that time in the winter has different kinds of celebrations, different ways to enjoy the cold together. You know, in Switzerland, again, a, a cold um, place in the winter, although Basel not as much, but a lot, you know, in the mountains especially, there are things that people do in the winter to keep them cozy and happy. You know, we have a fireplace in our apartment. We have a raclette table where we melt hot cheese to get together with people in the winter. I mean, you wouldn't really want to eat that in the summer. Um, people make fondue. Um, you know, when I lived in Vienna, there were these kind of little 
little tiny huts by the river that would get set up in the winter where people could go with their friends in this little cozy space and do those kinds of things as well. So, you know, if you have that kind of stuff available to you, it's very different than um, just trying to, you know, get through that dark winter and survive. If you have like sports and social elements that are associated with winter, then it becomes a very different kind of experience for you. Um, And so, you know, all of these things could really change the shape of a fiction that you're creating. And I think at this point, it makes sense to move um, deeper into a few of the literary examples I've got for you. Um, I know that a few of our listeners here who write on Substack, specifically who write fiction on Substack, make great use of pathetic fallacy. I'm thinking especially of Nathan Slake and Alexander Ipfelkofer. Um, I hope that they link in some of their work for you um, in the comments this week. Um, and if they don't, then I will, because each of them in their fiction, they do a lot with path- pathetic fallacy. Um, I'm not sure if it's on purpose or not, but you can see that as an example, kind of a living example of something that's changing shape each week as they write. Um, There are loads of examples. If we go back to classical literature in Shakespeare, I mean, there there are just a ton. You know, The Tempest Tempest by the title, you know, um, even if you don't know the play well, I'm sure you can consider, you know, this idea of the storm um, reflecting the emotions of some of the characters. Um, there's, there's also the sea, you know, that first they're on a ship and a stormy sea, um, is going to be especially tumultuous and, you know, the characters are not in control. It's kind of fate sailing the winds in some ways. Um, you can find pathetic fallacy in almost all of Shakespeare's plays. Um, in Hamlet, Gertrude says at one point, mad is the sea and wind when both contend, which is the mightier. Um, we have several mentions of storms throughout, as well as the wind, um, in this kind of tumultuous play that is sometimes talking about madness as well. Okay. And then, um, in Macbeth, for example, there's, um, a short passage that demonstrates pathetic fallacy as well. Um, so it's describing the murder of, of Duncan, and this is in Act 2, Scene 3. Lennox says, The night has been unruly. Where we lay, our chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard in the air, strange screams of death, and prophesizing with accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events, new hatched to the woeful time, the obscure bird clamored the livelong night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. So it's as if the weather itself is announcing the death as well as um, as well as um, including the terror of death itself um, through the night. Uh, and so, you know, Shakespeare is doing some interesting things with, with the weather, with the bird, um, with the way that the earth itself was shaking. And these kind of stormy experiences linked with death and madness we see in a lot of gothic literature, which might not be um, so surprising. I also, in this chapter I shared with you this past weekend, I include a storm, a typhoon. Um, Typhoons um, hit Hong Kong quite a lot, especially in the summer months, but um, they... uh, to, so it, I, I, I used it to echo the storm inside of the protagonist's mind and the kind of extreme feelings she has close to mortality and 
confinement um, and this kind of closeness to danger, but then she's almost embracing um, that danger as well and the way she throws herself into the storm. So yeah, we see this in a lot of gothic literature. If you just Google um, pathetic fallacy in literature, you're going to come up with Weathering Heights by Emily Bronte, um, almost all the, and probably 90% of the stuff that's out there, like study guides for high school students. I mean, probably because it's often read in high schools, but in, in other academic articles as well. And I mean, obviously such a great, rich text. Um, and the title itself, Weathering Heights, um, refers to a kind of pathetic fallacy. It's the height of the house on the top of this hill and the way that it is susceptible to the weather around it. And then the way the people um, are kind of placed on this hill metaphorically as well and susceptible um, to the natural elements and to fate and to what's going to happen to them, right? So in chapter nine, here's a here's a short quote about midnight. While we sat up, the storm came rattling over the heights in full fury. There was a violent wind as well as thunder and either one or other split a tree off at the corner of the building. A huge bough fell across the roof and knocked down a portion of the east chimney stack, sending a clatter of stones and soot into the kitchen fire. We thought a bolt had fallen in the middle of us, and Joseph swung on to his knees, beseeching the Lord to remember the patriarchs Noah and Lot, and, as in former times, spare the righteous, though he smote the ungodly. I felt some sentiment that it must be a judgment on us also. So sometimes there is a kind of um, godly connotation to the weather's emotions, and almost as if it's judging the people in the text so you know you can play with that as well um if your characters um are either religious or they believe in some kind of fate you know how do they see those those things represented um represented in the text uh sorry represented in weather as well in chapter 13, then, Bronte writes, These are the earliest flowers at the heights, she exclaimed. They remind me of soft thaw winds and warm sunshine and nearly melted snow. Edgar, is there not a south wind and is not the snow almost gone? The snow is quite gone down here, darling, replied her husband, and I only see two white spots on the whole range of moors. The sky is blue and the larks are singing and the becks and brooks are all brimful. Catherine, last spring at this time, I was longing to have you under this roof. Now I wish you were a mile or two up those hills. The air blows so sweetly. I feel that it would cure you. I shall never be there but once more, said the invalid, and then you'll leave me, and I shall remain forever. Next spring you'll long again to have me under this roof, and you'll look back and think you were happy today. So spring as a kind of, um, instead kind of a, a rebirth or also a time for lovers to get together, I mean, there's always a connotation with the seasons. And um, it's almost like the weather is tricking her in this passage um, in the changing of the seasons. So, you know, it's it's important too to keep your characters on their toes and not allow them to necessarily succumb to the weather or the seasons around them. And there are many more examples of this kind of gothic stormy weather as well in Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Um, in chapter 21, she starts, the night was stormy. The wind had been rising at intervals the whole afternoon. And by the time the party broke up, it blew and rained violently. Um, Catherine, as she crossed the hall, listened to the tempest with sensations of awe. And when she heard it rage around a corner of the ancient building and closed with sudden fury, a distant door 
felt for the first time that she was really in an abbey. Yes, these were characteristic sounds. They brought to her recollection of countless variety of dreadful situations and horrid scenes, which such buildings had witnessed and such storms ushered in. And most heartily did she rejoice in the happier circumstances attending her entrance within walls so solemn. So um, at the end, you then have the assisted, uh, immediately assisted by the cheerful blaze of a wood fire at the end of that paragraph. Um, and so there's that contrast of the storm that's kind of ushering in the the horrific nature, uh, human nature as well. And then on the inside, you have the comfort of the fire and this cheerful blaze. So the fire itself is a kind of happiness for the character. Um, and then in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, chapter seven, then without warning, the tempest broke with a rapidity, which is at times seemed incredible. And even afterwards is impossible to realize the whole aspect of nature at once became convulsed. The waves rose in growing fury, each overtopping its fellow till in a very few moments, the late, the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster and it goes on like that for quite a while as you might imagine but it's uh you know stoker does this a lot in um in dracula with the, with the sea with the storms the fog and creates this kind of atmosphere that's that's frightening and and also makes us consider you know what's going on in the human mind as well um and frankenstein you know there's the very famous chapter about the creation of the monster chapter five on this dreary night of November. Um, and it's with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony. I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse the spark of being into the lifeless thing. It's this kind of this ang uh, agony and anxiety that's connected to this dreariness of the weather as well. A little bit later in the chapter, um, Shelley writes, morning dismal and wet at length dawned and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes, the church of Ingolstadt. Um, so this, um, this, uh, this dismal morning, um, just it's kind of the reality setting in of what Frankenstein has created and what he's done. Um, it says, I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although drenched by the rain, which poured from a black and comfortless sky. You know, the sky is offering him no comfort because it's almost judging him and and it's also reflecting the emotions that he has himself about himself, which are that he has done quite a, a bad thing that's gonna lead to um it's gonna lead to a lot of, of problems. And he doesn't quite understand it, which is perhaps why it's it's blacked out and he can't really he can't really see clearly at this time. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of passages in Frankenstein that we could look at um, in chapter 23. It was eight o'clock when we landed. We walked for a short time on the shore, enjoying the transitory light, and then retired to the inn and contemplated the lovely scene of waters, woods, and mountains, obscured in darkness, yet still displaying their black outlines. The wind which had fallen in the south now rose with great violence in the west. The moon had reached her summit in the heavens and was beginning to descend. The clouds swept across it, swifter than the flight of the vulture, and dimmed her rays, while the lake reflected the scene of the busy heavens, rendered still busier by the restless waves that were beginning to rise. Suddenly a heavy storm of rain descended. I had been calm during the day, but so soon as night obscured the shapes of objects, a thousand fears arose in my mind. I was anxious and watchful. 
And, you know, we naturally become more fearsome when it's it's dark because we can't see very clearly. We, you know, lose part of our senses and, you know, um, dangers can be cloaked in the nighttime. So it, it's a natural kind of feeling. But I think that Shelley is able to extend it a bit deeper into um, a more metaphorical pathetic fallacy for us. And there are quite a few contemporary works that, of course, do this as well. Um, a great one is The Memoirs of Stockholm Sven by Nathaniel Ian Miller. Um, and the protagonist um, is uh, this, this Swedish man who becomes quite isolated in the Arctic. I mean, you'd be fairly isolated there anyway, but he becomes even more isolated after he... Um, um, has a like his his face is disfigured in an accident there, and he sort of chooses to throw himself into even deeper isolation. And you can imagine that the Arctic's extreme conditions, um, the weather and the landscape as well, reflect the solitude of this protagonist. It, it's a really great book. And then Ali Smith, she's got this whole season series. Um, she, you know, looks at transitions a lot and kind of the perception of time through the seasons. Um, So I'll just read you a short passage from Autumn. This is on page 177. It says, October is a blink of the eye. The apples weighing down the tree a minute ago are gone and the tree's leaves are yellow and thinning. A frost has snapped millions of trees all across the country into brightness. The ones that aren't evergreen are a combination of beautiful and tawdry, red-orange, gold the leaves, then brown and down. The days are unexpectedly mild. It doesn't feel that far from summer. Not really, if it weren't for the underbite of the day. The lacy creep of the dark and the damp at its edges. The plants calm in the folding themselves away. The beads of the condensation on the web strings hung between things. On the warm days it feels wrong. So many leaves falling. But the nights are cool to cold. The spiders in the sheds and the houses are guarding their egg sacs on the roof corners. The eggs for the coming year's butterflies are tucked on the undersides of the grass blades, dotting the dead-looking stalks on the wasteland, camouflaged, invisible, and the scrubby-looking bushes and twigs. So it is about this this changing perception of time, how it feels feels like really fast all of a sudden, that everything is changing, and it's like... um, it's like the the writer or the abstract reader isn't really isn't really prepared for this. It's confusing because these warm days don't feel like they're bringing death. And then, oh yes, at night it's cold, and of course the leaves fall, and we are reminded of it. Um, you know, we have these markers of a kind of a hibernation, things um, hibernating, and then that will come back in the spring. Um, you know, so it can be either of death coming or of new beginnings this way. And that kind of, um, that kind of insecurity of knowing, you know, what will be at the other end of winter is that feeling in the autumn. It's at once both exciting and really frightening too. So, I mean, another fantastic book, all of her books make big use of pathetic fallacy. George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo. Um, he's, talking about um the death of lincoln's son throughout this book and it's if you haven't read it it's just it's another beautiful book um in the way that it mourns but also in in many other ways and it's quite surreal um in also other ways there's a lot of 
ghosts and things like this going on. So it says they buried Willie Lincoln on a day of great wind that tore the roofs off houses and slashed the flags to ribbons. In the procession to Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown, two white horses drew the hearse bearing the, the little boy who had known only happiness, but black horses drew the carriage in which sat the worn and grief-stricken president. The gale blew the roofs off tall houses, shattered glass windows, leveled fields of military tents, turned muddy streets into canals and canals into rapids. Gusts of wind destroyed several, several churches and many shacks, uprooted trees, blew out the skylights of the Library of Congress, waves inundated the long bridge over the Potomac to the Alexandria. The father drove, unseeing, through the wreckage. So it's 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 sadness, yes, but it's also this kind of rage at the unjustness of the death. Um, and it's the way that all these things are happening around the father and, you know, the way that Saunders often refers to Lincoln as the father and not this kind of iconic, um, historical figure, um, really humanizes him and, and shows the way that he can just, um, he, he becomes, um, so struck by grief that he almost can't find his human emotions at this point. And it's almost like everything else is taking the emotions for him, taking that burden for him. So he doesn't have to feel it at this, at this very difficult moment for him. Um, you could also look at Mishima, the sailor, the sailor who fell from grace with the sea, um, we have um, the sea as a, actually a kind of freedom here in its tumultuousness versus the harsh, the harsh sun at shore. And so the, the boy in the story sees the sea as a marker of um, uh, masculinity and freedom and just the, the ability to voyage out and make one's own life. Um, there's also My Life with the Wave by Octavio Paz. This is a short story. It's only about four pages and I'll link it for you so you can read that yourself. Um, and it's, you know, the wave is kind of this woman that the, that the protagonist or the narrator is, is in love with and she's, um, at once so strong and beautiful and yet elusive, um, and it enrages him the way that she is elusive in a way as well. So um, that's a really gorgeous story. So you could just to just to end um, this part on pathetic fallacy, you might also think about how some cultures look at the way the elements are are embedded within us. Um, so in yoga, for example, which some of you know, I've um, done quite a bit of reading in and research in after a lot of years of yoga practice and studying to be a, a yoga teacher. And um, in yoga, they talk about the five elements, so earth, water, fire, air, and space or ether being balanced within a person and um, keeping that balance to have a kind of calm um, is something that you're always trying to strive for. And those elements are represented in the chakras or energy fields that you may have um, heard about if you've gone to yoga classes. Even if you haven't um, done a lot of reading about yoga, you may have heard of that. Um, and the way that these different elements re represent different parts of the person. So the earth, for example, representing solid solidity, stability, grounding, the water as fluidity, adaptability, and change, fire as energy, passion, and transformation, air as movement, expansion, and communication, 
space as emptiness, consciousness, and intuition. And there's there's more than that as well. And these aren't, you know, specifically named as emotions here, but I think that you can um, you can liken them to that. And you might want to play around with this idea of balancing the elements in this way in your characters and how you might see that um, in the the weather and nature in general around them. So it just might be a fun way to think about it. But we will um, we will come back to these ideas in a short five minute form on Thursday to look at how you can use them in your own fiction. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. Okay, so today we are talking about reclaimed land or the process of land reclamation. Um, and I mentioned some um, reclaimed land in regards to Sheng Wan uh, last week, which is a section of Hong Kong Central Island, which has um, quite a bit of reclaimed land. And actually, it was the first area where the British um, worked on a project um, in 1851 when there was a huge fire and a lot of buildings were destroyed. They used the the material of destruction along with um, soil from up on the hills. They placed this all together to make an extra 15 meters um, into the coast. And so that was the first time that this had happened. So 1851, so quite a long time ago. And since then, there's been, um, quite a lot of land reclaimed in Hong Kong. So by 2018, um, reclaimed land represented 6% of Hong Kong's total area and 25% of its developed land. So there's a lot of land that's also um, jungle, hiking trails, um, etc. Um, but reclaimed land houses around 27% of Hong Kong's population and 70% of its business activities. So, I mean, that's huge. So basically, a lot of the buildings that are for, um, you know, things like banking, different businesses, it's on this reclaimed land in the harbor, right at the edge of the harbor, Um 20%, 27% of the population, now the Hong Kong population is around 7 million. Um, and so, you know, that is a huge amount of people, more than a quarter of the people um, living on land that other people have, you know, created from, from nothing, really. It was once um, a part of the sea. So it's really interesting walking around Hong Kong. You can see these kind of signs and plaques all around the city that show um, different marks of where the the coastline used to go to. There's plaques for the original coastline um, way back by Bonham Road, if you if you know Hong Kong. And then um, there are further markings where, like in different years, oh the coastline went here, and then there might be a map showing you. Um, the different areas. And I'll, I'll link in also a, um, um, a map online where you can kind of drag it through and see the evolution over time. And it's color-coded to show you over the years how how the land has been um, filled in. And it looks relatively small to the size of Hong Kong when you see this map. But then you have to keep in mind that, um, you know, as I said, most of the land inland is on these, these hills um, that are not not um 
inhabited or not very much and they don't have the business structures or the kind of transportation which is all along the coastline pretty much so i mean something to consider is you know this is part of the dialogue of the anthropocene right the land that um the the way that humans have impacted nature and changed um changed the world right and in this changing shape of the world, is this kind of land reclamation okay? You know, is it, are there studies being done on how it affects um, wildlife, um, on how it affects the water, um, you know, in different ways? And, you know, it's almost impossible to check for everything because there's kind of a domino effect um, that we can't always account for. Um, really interesting researcher who was a classmate of mine at the University of Hong Kong and a, and a colleague, um, Kuai Chu, uh, who's now working in Singapore, does quite a lot of work on the Anthropocene and sometimes is talking about um, land reclamation as well. So you might want to check out his work. I will link that in. Um, he's a really fascinating researcher and person and um, yeah, he gives sometimes he gives online lectures as well. So it's definitely worth checking him out. The land reclamation it was not new in Hong Kong. You know, the Dutch, for example, have been doing this for 2000 years. They're probably the most famous example because they are, continue to um, work on the land in this way and try to create um, land, not just at the coastline, right, but also um, within in terms of irrigation and filling in wetlands and things like that to um, make it more inhabitable or make it a better space for agriculture. So um, you can look at the Dutch version of this. You know, this is this kind of thing happens all over the world to different degrees. Um, and it sounds like something that would, you know, always be negative. We are changing the shape of the land, so it must be hurting the environment. But that's not always the case necessarily. You know, I'll link in another article that talks about the way that it can be used to restore the environment. Um, so, for example, restoring degrading mining sites to create sustainable ecosystems, converting abandoned industrial areas into parks or recreational spaces, um, reclaiming coastal areas or wetlands to create new habitats for wildlife. So it's not only about just taking from nature and giving to humans. It can also be something to try to um, restore um, in a different way. So it's, you know, it's a multifaceted term. It's not only a negative term. It's maybe interesting to think about, you know, the purpose of why that's happening. Um, Hong Kong does this also, um, you know, it does it for function and growth for sure. And, you know, some say that it could never have become the urban center, that it is um, without this kind of land reclamation. They also do it for safety to guard against um, mudslides. Um, there's these torrential rains called black rain, um, not necessarily during a typhoon, um, which which then, you know, could could land on homes or uproot buildings in different ways. And so, you know, the way the land is changed is, is also um, for the safety of the people, you know, and so... So is that okay, even if it affects nature in different ways? Just something to think about. Um, but, you know, the the way that people have changed the land has 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 absolutely changed um, nature. You know, there, there used to be tigers in Hong Kong until the last one was killed in Stanley in 1942, so still quite some time ago. Um, but, you know, personally, I wouldn't want to have to 
worry about seeing a tiger on a hike. Um, so, you know, I, great. I'm happy there weren't any tigers there while I was living there. But at the same time, it just shows how dramatically people have changed um, the world around them. And, you know, we see this in, in so many places. And there's never really an easy answer because humans, you know, want to grow and prosper and be safe and, you know, not worry about their loved ones when, um they go outside and the dangers that they face. But on the other hand, um, you know, we want to preserve the world that's around us. So how do we reconcile that difference? There's a great novel that comes out of Singapore called um, The Great Reclamation by Rachel Heng. Um, And if you're thinking about using some kind of Rand reclamation idea in your fiction or using it as a metaphor for change, Um, her book is a great one to look at. And in a New York Times book review, um, it kind of brings together her ideas in this way. It says, the question of change, whom it affects and how, sits at the core of Rachel Heng's second novel, The Great Reclamation, a stunning historical fiction set against the backdrop of Singapore's struggle for independence during and after World War II. The novel is vast in scope. We are there to witness the last days of British colonial rule, the devastating consequences of the Japanese invasion and later expulsion land reclamation initiatives, and the push toward Merdeka, the Malay term for signifying freedom. So if you can actually change the shape of a place, then surely you can change its culture, its fate, for better or for worse. And this is what I think about when I think of um, the land um, that's literally grounding um, the story that I'm creating a fiction about. And so, you know, even, you know, how often do we consider the land that's under the the footsteps of these characters or that's under the building in which they reside? And how did that land get there? Um, you know, and it might just be interesting to think of that as another layer of your fiction. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative. And let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 